Horses have always played a unique role in New York City's history. In the 1800s, they were vital to the city's economy. Horses pulled wagons loaded with goods from the shore, and they powered a trolley system. Today, horses are still working for the city. They help police patrol the streets, and of course, tourists love them. Carriage ride, anyone? Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. This morning's show is all about horses. We'll visit an after-school riding program in the Bronx, check out an old stable in Brooklyn, and get in on a polo match a little north of the city. Instead of joining a local country club or buying a yacht, we play polo. That and more on this week's Cityscape from 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Before we get to our horse-related stories for this week's show, we thought we'd check in with Anthony Affronti. This evening, of course, we'll see the 139th running of the Belmont Stakes, the final leg of the Triple Crown Series. Anthony is a racing rider and handicapper for the New York Post, and he's here to bring us up to speed on today's big race. He joins us from his desk at the Post. Anthony, welcome to Cityscape. Thanks for having me. So paint the scene for us at Belmont this weekend. What's the crowd like? What's the atmosphere like? Uh, it's usually pretty good. They start coming in, I mean, in the last couple of years, they start coming in early. They start lining up maybe around 11 o'clock and uh gets a little rowdy in the backyard. You know, not as much as the Preakness and the Derby, but, uh, you know, depending on if there's a triple crown hopeful like we had with Smarty Jones and Funnyside, it's a pretty, pretty good crowd. You know, I wish, I wish we saw more of that during the racing year. Has racing been dying off? Why haven't you seen the crowds? You know, with the internet now, and then with the uh, OTBs, and you know, there's just there's more of a chance for the hardcore betters and everybody who used to come out to, you know, do it in other venues. They don't come out to the track as much, and you know, I guess you know it just hurts. You you look at the old like the 60s, the 50s. You see old races, and you know, there's like 40,000 people at Aqueduct on a Saturday or even a Friday. You know, back then, and now there's just there's too many ways, I guess, to bring it to your home and. Nobody comes out anymore. You might not be seeing record crowds, but this is a big deal. The winner gets this big blanket of carnations. There's a parade. Yeah, it's usually, you know, it starts off, you know, in the in the town surrounding, like, Floor Park and Garden City. They have, you know, street fairs on Friday night where, uh, you know, they have, like, starting gate demonstrations for the kids, and, you know, everybody comes out. It's like a, uh, you know, kind of like a, you know, carnival street fair. And, um, you know, the whole week usually builds up to the race, and that day, you know, you see celebrities at the track. A lot of people come out. They have a lot of, you know, the, the whole racing card as a whole is pretty good. You got a lot of stakes races and, uh, you know, just a lot, of, a lot of things to do that day. This race in particular is often referred to as the test of the champion. It's longer than the other Triple Crown races, and it's the last in the series. How tough is it on the horses and the riders? Well, for the, for the riders, like uh, looking at this year, I was just going through the stats. We only have, um, Edgar Prado has run the, won the Belmont twice. And other than that, you have Mike Smith and uh, John Velasquez has ridden. Uh, Mike Smith has uh, ridden it 11 times. Uh, Velasquez 10. Other than that, you don't have too many other jockeys that are, you know, in the, every other jockey hasn't even been ridden in the race, you know, never mind winning. For the jockeys, from what they say, this race is won at the quarter pole. But the problem is not many horses have run this distance or will ever run the distance again. And so, you know, it, it, take, it takes a lot out. You'll see horses coming. That, that run in the Belmont, they won't run. They'll be on layoff till maybe, you know, August, September, you know, or they'll finish out the year with the Belmont. It, it, takes, uh, it takes a long toll. It's a hard, hard race to win, a hard race to run it. I mean, just finishing the race, you know, says something. Anthony, you're a handicapper. I know you can't give away your secrets, but what do you look for when trying to pick a winner at Belmont? I usually look for a, uh, you know, a late runner. You know, that's something like the horses, when they start kicking in, you know, it, you know going into the maybe 
the quarter pole when they start doing their best run, and that's what you look at. I mean, it hasn't been working well so far this year, but, uh, you know, uh, compared to other tracks like Aqueduct where you need speed-favoring horses, you know, horses towards the front, Belmont traditionally has, you know, been more favorable to the horses in the back of the pack that they can do. They have bigger, the uh, sweeping turns favor more of a late kick, you know, as of the other tracks like, say, uh, Pimlico, where they had the Preakness, that just did their tighter turns, Churchill Downs. So there's a lot there's a lot more room for the jockeys to navigate and the horses, you know, there's a lot less bumping at Belmont. So that you know, therefore there's a lot more clear uh room to make a run later on. So that's one thing to look for at Belmont. But then also again you gotta looser the the surface. They call it big sandy, you know, they don't call it that for nothing at uh Belmont Park. It's a lot more of a uh, loose surface too. So you you know, sometimes you see horses that come from California, you see them come from you know, the western part of the country, they're running on more of a dirt where this is more of a sand base in the track. So that's another thing to pay attention to, too. I usually go for the funniest names. I guess that's not the best thing to do. <laughs> you know what? In this game, anything works. Sometimes you're better off, to tell you the truth. How did you get involved with racing and covering racing in New York City? Uh, well, actually, it's a long story, actually. My parents were always... Uh, talking about, you know, racing. They used to go with my grandparents years ago, and they brought us to uh, Roosevelt Raceway out on Long Island when I was, like, maybe eighth grade. And the first night there, I won about $800 just taking numbers. So it seemed kind of easy, and then we went from there. And I think it was 88 was the first time I went to the Belmont Stakes. My parents brought me out, and we saw a Risen Star uh, win the Belmont. And after that, we were just hooked. You know, I was going, we were going every weekend, me and my brother, my parents. And uh, from there... Um, I went to uh, college, didn't know what to do, went out to work for a while, came back, went back to uh, St. John's, and uh, a friend of mine at the racing forum, uh, Steve Grabowski, was offering a racing class. And uh, I took that and started an inter- intern at Naira at uh, Belmont and then Saratoga. And um, a job came up, and I got the job here at the Post about three years ago, 2004. So since then, it's been great. You know, It was always something that I always did on myself, handicapping, you know, now... Now, when you're doing it for the public, it's, uh, it's a little uh, crazy to think about, but uh, it's been fun so far. Pressure's on, I guess. Yeah, yeah, actually it is, yeah. You know, when, you, when you're dipping into your own wallet, you can get a little crazy, but when you have people second-guessing you, <laughs> I guess it's a different story. Anthony Affronti is a racing rider and handicapper for the New York Post. Thanks so much, Anthony. All right, thanks, thanks for having me. Some kids get reprimanded for horsing around after school, but there's at least one place in the Bronx where it's perfectly acceptable— the Riverdale Equestrian Center at Van Cortland Park. I recently talked to the manager and checked out the center's after-school riding program. My name is James Keenan. I'm manager at Riverdale Equestrian Center. How long have you been here, James? My whole life. <laughs> I think I started coming here when I was around 9 or 10. Really? So yeah. always interested in horses? Always. Grew up right down the street, so it was convenient. What kinds of programs do you offer here? Uh, we have after-school riding programs throughout the year, uh, and we offer a summer camp throughout the summer. Why don't you describe this place for us? I look around, and it's really quite majestic. Well, we have several outdoor riding rings, two grass paddocks, several turnout fields for the horses to play in, large indoor arena, um, you know, lots of property <laughs> for the Bronx. <laughs> How big is the, the property here, do you know? around 23 acres give or take (laughs) when you tell people what you do and they know you're from new york city is that a surprise ever it's more of a surprise when they find out that i grew up in new york city (laughs) usually they're like oh you're from montana or something but no 
You want to show me around a little bit? Sure. Okay, well, we have several barns throughout the stable where horses are have stalls, but they're outside, so they get to uh, check out the scenery. And then uh, inside the barn, we have several other stalls where, you know, they live in here. Um, let's see, we have feed rooms, tack rooms, bathroom, of course. <laughs> Upstairs where we keep the hay. Okay, and then we'll step out here. Okay, more horses live out here. And then we have this little courtyard area where a lot of the uh, school horses live. You know, they're all pretty much in one area so that it's easy to keep an eye on everybody. I would assume all the horses have names. They do all have names and they're all listed right on the stall doors. This is Peanut, our little pony right here. <laughs> uh, here's one of the dressage rings right here where you know boarders can come out and ride and wash stalls where when it's hot and they need to be cooled off or washed off, this is where we'll do it. And then we have some paddocks out here where some of the ponies, they like, they prefer to live outside. So <laughs> some prefer to live in, some prefer to be out. So we try to accommodate everyone. A lot of work involved here, I would imagine. Work. A lot, a lot of work. It's definitely um, keeps you on your toes, you know, but everyone that works here is great about, you know, dealing with health issues and just overall quality of life for our horses. What is a typical day like here? Typical day usually starts around five in the morning where all the horses will, not all at once, but they'll all go out and be able to run around the paddocks and just be horses. And then, you know, while they're out, their stalls will get cleaned, they'll have their breakfast. Uh, then some of the boarders will come in the morning and ride and then they'll be done for the day and then our lesson program starts so our horses will go out and teach people how to ride. <laughs> this is really good Sam, he's not pulling against you. This is really, really good. My name is uh, Rachel Piggott, I'm a horse riding instructor at Riverdale Riding Centre. Always look ahead of you. Don't look at the ground. One of my personal favourites is to tell whoever's riding, whether it's a child or an adult, that they are the boss on that horse. They are the rider. They're the only person that can tell that horse what to do or pony what to do. And if they don't, the horse or pony will walk all over them and take them wherever they like in the arena. So to me, that's one of the most important lessons that they learn about life, that they have to take control. Ask him to bend to the inside and then give with your inside reins so and push your hand forward slightly. Good girl! Hi, my name is Sarah Chdea. Um, I've been riding here for three months. It's really hard. It takes about um, two or four weeks to learn how to control a horse. Take up more of a contact with your outside rein. Too long. I came after school here every Thursday, and um, I usually do walk, try, and cancer, and two-point position, and go over ground pulse. When you walk, it's like when you walk and you trot, it's like jogging. And when you canter, it's slow gallop. And when you gallop, you run. Don't lean in, sit up tall. Outside leg behind the girth, it's drifting. Good Good, go straight. Okay, so this is Sam right here in the brown. And this is Pumpkin. I mean, this is Pumpkin. Over there in that stall, he's Pumpkin. 
Stop, Snappy. I'm from New York, and my name is Piper Williams. It's a very nice place, and my favorite horse is Meatball. I think he's a very nice horse, and he looks like a meatball with Parmesan cheese. <laughs> my favorite thing on the horse is trotting. When I come um, I'm in the car, I'm like, now I get to focus on something else instead of math. Go, go, go. She's about to get a break, so don't feel bad asking her to go a little bit forward. My name's Danielle Ciotti. I'm a trainer at Riverdale Equestrian Center. It's what I love to do, so I'm pretty happy working with the kids and the ponies and teaching and getting a chance to hopefully affect how they treat the ponies in the future. Your elbows are working harder than you. You look like a football player. Gross. Good girl. Oh, there they go. You can find out more about the Riverdale Equestrian Center at RiverdaleRiding.com. Some of the kids I spoke to at Riverdale say they used to ride at the Claremont Riding Academy on Manhattan's Upper West Side. That stable shut its doors in April for financial reasons. Claremont had been the oldest continuously operated stable in the nation, and its closing has some questioning whether stables have a place in New York City's future at all. One facility that's hoping to be around for a while is Kensington Stables. It's just outside of Brooklyn's Prospect Park. Kensington has already lost one of its barns to make room for condos, and the stable's owner says what happens next is anybody's guess. My name is Walker Blankenship. I run the stables at uh, Prospect Park. I've been running the stable for 11 years. I have not always been a horse person. It, uh, I got interested in horses when I was in college. That was Brooklyn College, and I got interested in horses because we were playing Dungeons and Dragons and Knights in Shining Armor and Pegasus and Unicorns. This is uh, Caton Place in East 8th Street, which is just a two-block-long street that runs between the Ocean Parkway Service Road and Coney Island Avenue, uh, just one block south of Prospect Park. Uh, as I like to describe it, is ye old brick box. I mean, the only thing that you might find unusual about it is because unless you know horses, you don't understand why there's long, horizontal windows that are like 12 feet off the ground. But that's definitely shows that it was built as a stable. This is the final extension of a riding academy that was built in 1917, next door, which is currently a warehouse. I guess they must have planned, started planning in 1926 to add another 78 horses. And then in the end, uh, I think it was got its occupancy like in 1930. The other stable, basically it was kind of, they built a barn in their backyard of a small house that sat on the corner of uh, East 8th and Caton Place on the other side of the road. And uh, eventually the house fell down and the barn kept getting bigger until it was basically a small pen for horses to be turned out in and the backyard was now a two-story barn. We were evicted from that space when she sold the property to a developer for one and a quarter million dollars. So now they're building an eight-story condominium complex. In urban barns, of course, space is at a premium. So you're talking about, a, you know, we've actually, when we lost that barn across the street, we actually took and had to put in more of what's called the standing stall, okay, where horses have less than a box-like shape for their stalls, and they face only one direction, they can't turn around, unless you're a small pony like Marzipan, in which case you might turn around and it's a little awkward sometimes. 
generally we have a lot of support from uh, the house owners in the neighborhood and some of the condominium and co-op owners that uh, kind of look out and try to make long-range neighborhood plans, you know, which definitely include keeping the stables. But you have this huge building coming up next door, which all of it is glass balconies and windows facing the barn. Kind of not what I pictured. You know, I kind of pictured the driveway where they put the trash out. But uh, they have all this facing the barn. Not everyone likes this idea. You know, so there's bound to be conflicts that are going to arise from that. And so it's going to get harder and harder in order to try to, uh, to function. Landmark is, doesn't do anything to protect a horse, ever. What it does is protect a look of a building, and that's what it does. And as I said, ye old brick box. I would have to wonder why anyone would want to make it a landmark in the first place. And if it had protection for horses, then sure, what a great idea. But it doesn't protect horses. All it does is protect the ye old brick box look, which I don't think anyone's really very interested in doing. One of the things that's different about raising horses in New York City is the fact that, uh, that trying to dispose of the manure can be uh, more complex than it might be in the country. In the country, you might be uh, lucky enough to be able to dispose of your manure by simply just making a pile or spreading it out immediately on your fields. But here, we have to have it loaded into trucks and then taken to like a composting station. People are always surprised how old my horses are. I breed horses and I have horses that are trained for show in New Jersey. It's like what he considers a has-been is about what I start at, you know, and even for like the carriage horses in Manhattan, a lot of times it was, you know, horses that work for the Amish and when the Amish was like, well, this horse can't pull a plow, you know, that was the ones that people started thinking and saying, wow, you know, this would make a good carriage horse. You know, like 10, I think is a really good age. It's middle age, but they still have a long life expectancy. It's a rare to find a young one that wants to work in New York City because they, they're rambunctious like any teenager. They want to run around and, you know, and play around and horse around and socialize. So it doesn't work as well to stick to a program you know, that an older, more middle-aged horse can you know, work into. Walker Blankenship owns Kensington Stables in Brooklyn. Check them out online at kensingtonstables.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We'll continue with more horse tales in just a moment. We just got a glimpse into the life of a New York City rotting horse. But those aren't the only horses that go to work each day in this city. The NYPD's Mounted Police Unit is one of the oldest in the country. And while its duties have been scaled back in recent decades, Mounted Police still play an important role. We recently visited an NYPD stable located in Midtown Manhattan along the Hudson River. I'm uh, Officer Paul Anderson with the uh, NYPD Mounted Unit Troop B out of Manhattan. I've been a trooper uh, a little bit less than a year. I'm one of the newer uh, troopers that just graduated from the last class. And uh, I'm just going to go take you through basically a daily routine of everything that we do, which uh, starts at uh, 7 o'clock in the morning when we go through our roll call, receive our assignments. And we just, you know, just brush them. This gets all the dandruff off of them. Basically, upon receiving our assignment, you know, first thing we do is we take our horse out of a stall, you know, give him an, an overall visual inspection, make sure he doesn't have any cuts or anything like that, he's not limping or anything. And uh, right away, uh, we go right to you know, our currying and brushing um, which is a major part of the day. You make sure you get him patrol ready so that, you know, uh, you know he's, he's clean, he's, you know, uh, free of any dirt or anything like that, you know, and, uh, and brush him. 
Uh, most of us are assigned our own horses. Uh, my horse uh, that I ride every day is Brandy. He's one of the uh, older horses in the unit. He's about 16 years old. He's got about 10 years uh, street experience. He's an excellent horse, even though he is considered older. He's in great shape. Uh, and as I, I like to say, he's a bomb-proof horse. Nothing, nothing spooks him on the street, you know, for the most part. But, I mean, they are animals. You know, they, uh, you know once in a while they will get a little bit scared of something. Uh, none of the horses are named when they come to the farm, and they just have serial numbers. Like, uh, horses this year will start with uh, 07 for the year 2007. And upon his completion of all his training, then he'll be named. Usually... Uh, like you know, we like to name a, uh, a horse after a fallen officer uh, if we get the family's permission, which I think is a great honor. They do go through a lot of training. You know, our trainers they train them for several weeks, about six weeks. They'll take them down into Manhattan, work with them, see how they are. If they feel that they're a strong horse, he possesses enough character to do this job. He'll be paired up with a with a rider who uh, they feel that. Uh, can handle that horse, you know, whether he's, you know, very high, full of energy or he's more toned down, but they try to, you know, pair the horse with the rider, and then, again, you'll ride him for about four, four weeks. They're not just like, here, here's a horse and go out, you know, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, for the most part, I enjoy it, you know, it, it's kind of like a close-knit family, you know, it's, it's really great, you know, you don't really see that too much in the police department anymore, but, uh, you know, here it still exists, you know, like I said, we have a lot of deep roots, there's a lot of history, uh, the Mountain Unit's been around since uh, 1860. We're one of the oldest organizations in the police department, and uh, you know it's still going strong. Most police departments are disbanding their Mountain Unit. Uh, we've actually received several horses from Philadelphia PD. Uh, Philadelphia had disbanded their Mountain Unit. I think we received three of their horses. Uh, today I'm going to be covering uh, 42nd Street. I'm going to be in Times Square uh, between 7th and 8th Avenue, which is uh, what we call a priority post. Uh, if you go, ever go through Manhattan, you'll see, you know, there's always a lot of cops out there, um, you know, and uh, we're out there as well, you know, and, uh, you know, we have patrol functions just like a regular cop does, uh, you know, we enforce quality of life issues, we enforce parking issues, we help expedite traffic, and I just think that the overall view of having a, a police officer on horseback is such a huge crime deterrent, like we always say, if there's a, uh, a mounted police officer on the block, nothing ever happens, because everybody knows you're there. And uh, that's just a great amount of power, and it's just a, it's such a great feeling to know that, you know, people look up to you, you know, and uh, that, that's probably one of the biggest reasons why I joined the mounted unit. You know, like, to me, when I think of what a police officer is, that's it. It's the cop on horseback. Officer Paul Anderson is a member of the NYPD's mounted unit Troop B. Look for him and Brandy on patrol all over Manhattan. So we've met riding horses, a mounted policeman, and some burgeoning young riders. But what about those who just like to ride for fun? We ventured out to Prospect Park to meet a man who thinks horseback riding is the perfect urban activity. My name is Alan Staub. I live here in Brooklyn, New York. I rent uh, horses I have at the stable here. I've ridden a variety of them over the past few years. It's a very nice place. I've ridden myself about uh, 28 years. Here, I've ridden about 11 years. I used to ride at another stable some years back. Okay, come on, sir. Okay, straight ahead, buddy. Good job. The one thing that happens is you often run into problems here in the city that will be anticipated if there's a big truck or a crowd of people or something like that. Usually up in the country where I've ridden occasionally, you don't run into that as much. But it, I guess, you know, if they always say if you don't have any problems on a ride, you don't learn anything from it. Sometimes it seems a little funny as you're riding alongside of a 20-story building or something in certain parts. Most of the time, we're out in the park, but uh, it's a little different, I guess, than normally you would expect. 
one thing I'm impressed by is how the horses are so adaptable because they get used to this environment. They don't, they, in fact, sometimes when I'm in the saddle, I'm even surprised that I get frightened by something that my horse does not. It can be relaxing because you really have more tensions here probably than any place else. So, yeah, and I think the, the companionship of the horse plays a role too. It's almost like, I, I feel almost like having a big dog, although some people, I think, who are riding instructors don't like me comparing the two animals. They're quite different, but I think they're, they're both good companions. Uh, my wife and I also have a dog at home, and so when we come down here, it's very nice to have these uh, big animals as companions as well. That's Alan Staub riding in and around Prospect Park. While Alan finds riding to be relaxation, these next folks have a decidedly different approach. The Blue Sky Polo Club is located in Middletown, New York, about an hour northwest of the city. If you head down the long gravel driveway, you'll come across an enormous patch of grass about the size of nine football fields, where teams of four square off in the area's best polo league. We recently took in a match. Glenn Miller. I'm from Briarcliff Manor, New York. Well, we're in uh, Middletown, New York at Blue Sky Polo Club on a beautiful day, getting ready for a match. It's a polo match, and we're playing a team from New Jersey called Stone Rose. they got a really lot of good players, good horses, big investment in the, in the sport, and it should be a good game. Uh, this is another, instead of joining a local country club or buying a yacht uh, or a speedboat, you know, we play polo. I've been playing now, I think this is my eighth year, but uh, only my checkbook knows for sure. Hi, my name is Gaston Horacio Rodriguez. I'm from Buenos Aires, Argentina. I'm 29 years old, and I've been playing polo all my life. These are all Argentinian horses. Horses are the most important thing in polo, you know, are your legs. If you have a good horse, then you can play good polo and you can become a good player. I have six horses. Their names is Olivia, Martina, Vira, uh, Serena, Sarita, and then Janet. My name's Chuck Elms, and I'm the owner and manager of Blue Sky Polo Club. And um, we have leagues, and we have members here from all over the place, from uh, Florida that come here for the summer. We have guys from New York, uh, local guys that play. We have polo players from like all walks of life. You have guys that are playing polo that are wealthy as hell, you know, from some of the richest people in the country to guys that are just uh, farmers that have uh, horses, one or two or three horses, and and uh, just love to, love to play. You have teams with four players on each side. You have a Number three, who's sort of the captain and the pivot man on the team, turns to play, yet tends to be your best player. The number one is your sort of attacking player and out in front, supposed to receive the passes from the guys in the back. And Gaston is there, he's picking up the ball now. He turns the ball around. He's looking for another player to hit it to. He's tapping the ball down the field. He's making, he's setting up the play. Now he hits the ball, long, long shot. Probably hit that ball 150 yards. The horses are very, very important in the game. Of course, you want a, a very uh, fast horse so you can outrun the guy who's chasing you. But you also want a horse who's handy when you want to stop and turn and, and make a play or change directions. You, want, you need a very handy horse. Also, you need a horse that's got the stamina. 
this is one of the few sports where amateurs and pros play together. You don't see, you know, somebody just playing baseball with the New York Yankees. Here you have guys that are paid professionals out there playing with guys that are paying them, and they're playing together on the team. And sometimes you get guys that are very wealthy guys, and they want to win, so they hire the best guys that buy the best horses possible. Sometimes it's, I think it's a, a joke. I go to some, watch some of the matches in, in Greenwich or in Palm Beach, and you have a guy out on the field that can hardly ride a horse. He's a very, very wealthy guy, and he's hired some of the best polo players in the world, has some of the best horses, and they just pray to God, the pros that are playing for him, that he stays out of the way and doesn't, doesn't get hurt. And if he hits the ball once in the game, he probably feels like he's a hero. Polo is something when, when people get into it, it becomes very addictive. And I've seen, since I've been playing polo, I've seen people come into it. They spend a lot of money, more than they can afford. I've had people come in, they, they go crazy. They buy horses, they buy trucks and trailers, they hire pros, and they just go nuts. That's Chuck Elms, owner of the Blue Sky Polo Club. And in case you're interested, the home team, featuring Glenn and Gaston, won their match 10-4. to That's it for this week's Cityscape. The weather's warm, so it's the perfect time to take up horse riding. We hope we've given you some ideas. And while you're riding around, why not take in a Cityscape podcast? You can find out how to get them at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a great weekend.